0: Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on Sunday, September 15th, 2013. Today's message is Suffering and Sharing by Pastor Bradley Reed based on 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-18. through 18. Well, good morning. It's good to be back here again this morning. Despite the haircut, I'm the same person as last week. And I have to say, it's nice, I was, I was talking with Isaac earlier, it's nice as a preacher to be able to preach the same place a couple Sundays in a row. Uh, I didn't often get that opportunity when I was serving as youth or associate pastor. And so it's it's good to be here, and I hope that by the end of my sermon, you feel the same way, that it's good that I'm back again this morning. I want to also take an opportunity just to commend you as a church a little bit. Last week, when when I walked through the door... There was a few people here that I, I know, and they would recognize me, but it was nice to walk in, and I had a number of people greet me and introduce themselves. You made me feel very welcome, and that was before anyone knew that I was preaching, and so that's, that's really good. That's good that, as a church, someone can walk in and feel welcome. I would commend you on that, and I would encourage you to continue to show that sort of welcome to everyone who, who comes in here on a Sunday morning or any time. It's a great thing for a church to be able to do that. Last week, we looked at 2 Timothy. We started in in chapter 1, and we looked at uh, the first seven verses. We looked at how we have a legacy of faith. We could look, if we were able, we could see how our faith stretches back to Jesus and even beyond. We can look at how God has been at work in our ministries. We can take encouragement in that. We saw how God gives us his spirit of love, of power, of self-control. And when you take that and you combine it with his grace, mercy, and peace, which Paul opened the letter with, we know that we have all we need in order to do the ministry that God calls us to do. And I reminded you again and again, you as followers of Jesus are to be ministers of the gospel. If you follow him, he calls you to be a minister of the gospel, to go and proclaim the truth of Jesus to the world around you. And I hope you had an opportunity to read 2 Timothy this last week. I encouraged you to do that last week and to just read through it. Four chapters. Doesn't take too long. Last week I mentioned that I was reading Les Mis on my Kindle and I was about 6% through that book. Well, I was diligent this week and I read a lot in, in the book and now I'm 8% through that book. It's going to be a while. Uh, But you could sit down and and you could read 2 Timothy and you could do it fairly quickly and you'd see the percentage move nice and fast. So I would encourage you to do that because it'll give you a better sense of the overall themes of this book and where Paul is is going in things and and seeing how it all ties together. It's it's great to be able to do that. We're called to be ministers of the gospel. And today we'll continue looking at 2 Timothy. We're going to see how we are called to share the gospel, but as we share, we're also going to be expected to suffer because of that. And we're going to see how Paul encourages Timothy in that to carry on, and he gives some examples of what it means to be loyal to the gospel, to be loyal to ministry. And he gives some examples of people who were poor people to follow in terms of their ministry, and some positive examples as well. We'll see that the truths of the gospel should promote in us a willingness, a readiness to suffer. We should expect that to happen. And we'll take great encouragement from those examples that Paul gives. Let me pray, and then we'll begin looking at uh, verse 8 and onward. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you that you have called us here to be sharing in worship and to be hearing from your word. And Father, I pray that your word would go forth and that, as you have promised, it will have an impact in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 8, Paul starts off and he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And if you remember last week, there was a little phrase in verse 6 where Paul talked about things and he said, for this reason. And I said, whenever you read a phrase like that, for this reason, you should look back and say, what's the reason that Paul is talking about? Well, it's the same thing here. When Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed, you should want to figure out, what is he talking about? The little phrase I learned to help me with this was whenever you read a therefore in the Bible, think of wherefore, the therefore. Where is it pointing to? What is he talking about? And as you look at it, you see... What Paul is saying is that God has given us his spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. And because of that, we need to make sure that we aren't ashamed of the gospel. We have the power within us to not be ashamed as we try to be ministers of the gospel. And actually, the next number of verses totally build off of this idea of not being ashamed. It's foundational to this text. And so we have to recognize we have power, and so we don't have to be ashamed. Timothy is told not to be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus, of the gospel, and he's not to be ashamed of Paul. And remember, Paul is in prison because he was faithful to the gospel. And the gospel was so key in the life of Paul that Paul would say that if you were disloyal to him as a person, it would be the same as being disloyal to the gospel. If you were ashamed of Paul, a prisoner, you would be ashamed of the gospel. He just it tied in so closely together in his mind because his mission, his life, was focused on preaching and sharing the gospel. So I wonder for myself, would people look at me and tie me that closely in with the gospel? I hope they would. I don't know that it always happens, but we should be thinking about that. Do people look at us and see the gospel of Jesus Christ as we try to live our lives, as people looked at Paul and saw that? I want you to know that in this, I don't think this is an indication that Timothy was already ashamed of the gospel. I don't think Paul was worried about that. We don't see that anywhere in this book or in the book of 1 Timothy or anywhere in the New Testament do we get any hint that Timothy was ashamed of the gospel or that he was ready to give up on his ministry. Instead, I see this as Paul giving a little advanced warning. Paul recognizing that others had become ashamed of the gospel or had become ashamed of him. And so he's encouraging Timothy keep on in what you're doing. Don't let even a hint of shame enter into your life and into your ministry. And we have to understand why could there be shame? Why could association with Jesus, with the gospel, be something to be ashamed of? And this is another thing that we have to keep in mind when we read our Bibles, is that we've got to enter into what were things like back then when this was written. When Paul was writing, what could be the shame that could be associated with the gospel for the people that that he knew, for the world in which he lived? And we have to remember that there was a different view of Jesus back then. Back then, Jesus, for Paul, where he was in Rome, would have been viewed as a criminal who had been executed by the Roman government. Not just executed, but crucified, which was the worst execution that you you could be given. It was reserved for the very worst of of society, for terrorists, for insurrectionists, for the people that the Roman government said, these are the enemies of the state, we need to get rid of them, we need to use them to set an example. And so Jesus, in a lot of people, was looked down upon. Uh, I, I don't think I'm putting it too lightly when I say people would think of Jesus, someone who was crucified, as the scum of the earth. And Paul's saying, don't be ashamed to be associated with someone who is viewed that way by the world around you. Timothy needed to keep in mind the truth of the gospel here. He needed to remember that the crucifixion of Jesus wasn't just because the Roman government allowed it to happen. It was because God's plan was that Jesus would be crucified so that we could be forgiven, so that we could serve God and honor him. Romans 1.16, we we see this, where... uh, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Keep in mind, Paul was a prisoner because of his belief in Jesus. Jesus was this this rebel who had been executed, and Paul was now following what had become an illegal religion. So he was an enemy of the state who was in prison, And so Timothy, if he showed any association with Paul, that would be a mark against him. So Timothy could have just taken the path of least resistance. He could have kept quiet. He could have just said, I'll walk away from this. I won't deny Jesus, but I won't publicly proclaim who he is, and I won't proclaim the gospel. But that would have been an indicator of shame. That would have been him saying, I don't believe in Paul. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm walking away. There was no middle ground for Timothy in this. It was either publicly proclaim Jesus or don't. Either publicly proclaim or admit that you're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. So we need to think about our own context, our own culture, because Jesus isn't looked down upon as a criminal anymore. In fact, in Canada, more and more, Jesus isn't known at all. If we were to go outside of of our churches... There's a lot of people who don't know anything about Jesus at all. Um, I was reading about one, one church, one fellow who was, was talking about someone who had come in, this kid who had come in and was, was learning a little bit in a Sunday school class, had never been in a church before, and he heard the, the story of Christmas. And he said, wow, this, this story about Jesus, it's really exciting, it's really neat, I've never heard this before, but why does his parents name him after a swear word? they had this total misunderstanding. No, no, Not misunderstanding at all, just no understanding of who Jesus is. And that's some of where we're at in our Canadian culture. More and more, people aren't aware of who Jesus is. And they think of Christians often as maybe old-fashioned or kind of uh, hypocritical or anti-intellectual or superstitious or, or these sorts of things. And so that is what we can be associated with when we proclaim Jesus as our Lord and when we proclaim the gospel. And we need to be willing to suffer that kind of shame, to have people look at us and say, oh, you're out of touch, or you don't get it, and you're, you're anti-intellectual, whatever it might be. Be willing to, to take on that label from others because we can have this opportunity to share the gospel with them. And I actually see the, the lack of, of knowledge about Jesus in our culture as a great opportunity because we can come in and we can proclaim the truth And there isn't necessarily all this background that people already have. They they haven't made up their mind about who Jesus is. And so if we can come and proclaim the truth to them in a way that they'll hear, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to have people come to Jesus in faith. So we're not to be ashamed. But there's a second command in the passage. uh, And we're told that we need to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is a tough thing to hear in some ways, isn't it? Not only do we avoid shame and do we proudly and publicly proclaim the gospel of Jesus, but we recognize that we will suffer as we seek to share and to live out the gospel. And this isn't just Paul at the end of his life saying, wow, I look back and I met Jesus and I went through a lot of really hard things and so I better give people a heads up in case the same sort of things happen to them. No, it's Paul recognizing that suffering is part of being a follower of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, we read the words of Jesus. And he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, and when you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this isn't a, a case where Jesus is saying, if, you suffer and are persecuted, you will be blessed. He's saying when you suffer, you will be blessed. You will be persecuted. You need to endure through that. And it doesn't just go back to the teachings of Jesus. We see Jesus talking about how the prophets in the Old Testament suffered and were persecuted because of their faith. We read in John 15, verse 20, that uh, Jesus says, Remember the, the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So all we have to do based on this is look at the life of Jesus. Jesus, who was perfectly obedient to God the Father in all things, who lived a life without sin, who was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. But there you go. He was obedient, and it led to death on a cross. He suffered because he was obedient to God the Father. And that was all part of the plan of salvation. But what we see is Jesus proclaiming truth and living out truth and suffering because of it. And we should expect no less is what Paul is saying here. But remember, we suffer for the gospel by the power of God. The power of God that gives us the love, the self-control to be able to serve well. Our ministry needs to start, it needs to end, it needs to be totally based on God's Holy Spirit. We can suffer well only with him. And we also don't have to suffer on our own. Paul says, share in suffering. Join with me in suffering. This isn't us off on our own, independently, trying to make it work. It's us as churches, as fellow believers, coming together and sharing in the suffering and in the challenges that we face. Part of the reality is that we will will have to do that together. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 12, 26 We read that if one member suffers, if one part of the body, one part of the church suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So be willing to suffer. Be willing to be mocked, to be ridiculed for your faith. The gospel is becoming more and more on the fringe of our society, as I was saying. The church is being pushed away. But again, what an opportunity to suffer well and to proclaim the gospel boldly in a way that people will be able to hear. So we shouldn't be ashamed. We should be willing to suffer. And then Paul gives us three great examples of loyalty in the midst of sharing, in the midst of not being ashamed, and in the midst of suffering. So first, Paul reminds us that we need to be loyal to Jesus, loyal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are suffering for the gospel by God's power, and we continue in verse 9, and we see that the God whose power saved us and called us to a holy calling, Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul jumps into this classic presentation of the gospel. You read this and you go, this is Paul. This is what he's passionate about. And he gives some of the basics of our faith. It's almost, I think, something that Paul might have memorized as kind of a creed, a way of saying this is the gospel, this is the truth. He doesn't highlight everything. If you read this, you don't have all of the gospel, but you've got some key points, and it's the key points that Paul wanted to remind Timothy about at that time in the context in which they were. Timothy, who needed to continue to use his gift, who needed to minister well in the midst of potential shame and suffering, So he highlights things. He highlights that he saved us, that he called us to a holy living, to be a holy people, to serve him, to be different from the culture around us. We see that it's based on his purpose, on his grace. It's not on our works. We can't do anything to earn the gospel and to earn our salvation. We can only have it given to us by faith in God, by his grace. We see that he had a plan that before time had even begun— He had this plan in mind. God had things in mind. He knew that we, that all of us, would have a part to play in proclaiming the gospel. Ephesians 2, we read, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So part of the amazing truth of the gospel is that you have a part to play in proclaiming it. God has good works already planned out for you, and you can go and do those. Not because you need to earn the gospel, but because as a result of it in your life, you can go and serve. You were chosen by God to serve him. And the the power of the gospel has been made known, as Paul talks about. Jesus, this guy who died on the cross, executed by the Roman government, he came and he revealed the power of the gospel. He abolished death. He brought life, immortality to light. And we celebrate that. This is Paul reminding us that eternal life isn't just when we die and go to heaven. Eternal life is here and now. If you know Jesus, you have eternal life. And you will have it fully when you meet Jesus face to face. So we share the gospel. We suffer because of our sharing. But we stay loyal to the gospel. One commentator kind of paraphrased a lot of what Jesus, a lot of what Paul was saying, and he wrote this. He said, be steadfast, rekindle your gift, take your part in the suffering, for we are already among those who have overcome death through Christ. We're already among those who have overcome death. We take part in that, we celebrate that, and we go and tell others about that. So we stay loyal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stay loyal also, our Timothy is encouraged to stay loyal to Paul, his friend, his mentor, his, his guide and teacher. Paul writes and says about the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. That's why he's in jail. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Remember, In Paul's mind, loyalty to the gospel is the same as loyalty to him, to Paul. And if you abandoned Paul, if Timothy abandoned Paul, he was pushing the gospel away. And Paul committed his life proclaiming the gospel. He was committed fully and completely to it. It's why he was appointed as a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, a preacher who could boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. An apostle who had the authority to say, this is truth. A teacher who knew not only this is truth, but knew how to communicate it to other people. Because it's one thing to know something, it's another to be able to teach it well to others. But that was Paul, that's what he did. And he's not ashamed. No matter what circumstance he was in, he was not ashamed of the gospel. When he says this phrase, I know whom I have believed, the idea here is it's it's ongoing. It's not just I knew what I believed, but it's I believed that, I still believe that, and I will always believe that. Paul says, no matter what my circumstances, I will believe in Jesus Christ and in his gospel. I will believe that even sitting in jail. And he believed it right up until his execution. He knew the gospel, and he was committed and believed in it. And he can stay loyal. He says that God is able to guard what he's entrusted to him. This is Paul saying, take my ministry and keep it safe. He gives that to God. And it gives him great boldness to proclaim. Even sitting in jail, Paul proclaims the gospel. And it should give all of us great boldness as well. We can entrust our ministries to God. It isn't dependent on the things that we do. So you as a church, you don't have to worry about how successful you look. You don't have to worry about how many people show up on a Sunday morning or how effective your ministry programs are, how many people are coming out on a Wednesday night, or other times. It isn't dependent on whether or not you have a pastor leading you or who's in leadership in, in other roles. The reality is God himself keeps your ministry safe. God himself has given you a ministry, and it doesn't change based on the change changing contexts of your church. It's the same for me. As I'm currently not serving anywhere, I need to remember that my ministry is safe. Whether I'm called to serve as a pastor somewhere or not, God has given me a ministry, and I entrust it to him for him to keep it safe for me. So we take Paul as a model. God reigns no matter what happens, and we can serve him no matter what. And Timothy had to take Paul as an example, and we can look to others who have taught us and helped us to understand the gospel and use them as examples to follow and to be loyal to as we serve together. And then the third loyalty that Paul highlights is in verses 13 and 14, where we read, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. So Timothy, remember at this time, he was serving as a pastor, probably in Ephesus, a church that was pretty messed up. They had false teachers coming in, even leaders within the church who were teaching false doctrine. And Paul was saying to Timothy, keep teaching truth. But what I love is the way he phrases it, the pattern of sound words. Timothy didn't have to quote Paul exactly whenever he was teaching. He needed to teach what was in line with Paul's teaching, but he could do it his own way, with his own personality, because that's the way to teach best, is the way that you are able to teach. So he didn't have to memorize how Paul taught and then go and try and teach the same sermon or the same lesson. He could do it his own way. It had to fit the pattern. Uh, I'm a trombone player uh, from way back. I, I started playing trombone when I was in, I think, grade 7 in, uh, in school in Edmonton. And I had the opportunity to learn. I, I'm able to pick up an instrument and learn fairly quickly. Trombone players are kind of weird. I've got this little picture to show uh, this morning. This is the parts of a trombone. And on the top, you see the parts of the trombone as seen by a child. It might be hard to see. Let me just describe it a bit. You've got the mouthpiece, and the, the, the kids think that's the part that goes toot. And there's the slide, which is the wee part. And there's the bell where the sound comes out, and that's the loud sound part of the, the trombone. And there's the spit valve at the bottom, which is the "ew, gross, kind of funny part. So that's the, how the kids see it. But then if you look at the bottom, you see a scene by a trombonist like me, it's the exact same thing. I see the mouthpiece and I go, oh, that's fun. And that's the, that's the part that goes toot. And the bell is the loud, loud noise and, and all those sorts of things. It's this idea that trombone players are a little bit odd in some ways. And they, they look at the things the same way as a child sometimes. I like playing trombone. I actually almost went to school for, for the music program to do it. And backing up to, to um, grade 7 and 8, I learned to play trombone. In grade 9, I switched schools. And the school that I went to, their music program was just getting started. And there was a bunch of kids, um, kids, they were my age, they were a bunch of grade 9 students who wanted to learn to play trombone. And my teacher said, well, Brad, you could do this. You could teach them how to play. And I said, OK. And so what did I do my first time sitting down with these, these fellow students who wanted to learn? I sat down and I tried to teach them the exact same way that I had been taught. I tried to remember the lessons that my teacher had taught me for how to play the trombone, and I tried to almost quote that teacher the exact same way, and it didn't work. It was frustrating for me, and for them, as people trying to learn to play trombone. So the next lesson, I switched things up a little bit. And I said, this is what I need to teach. Here's the the different uh, notes on the trombone, this is how to play them. And instead of teaching the way my teacher taught, I took that information and I taught it my way and I helped them to learn in the way that I was able to teach better. And it worked. It was much less frustrating. They actually were able to start playing, because I taught the same information, but I taught it in a different way. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy and what he's saying to us this morning. The content of the teaching is what's important. The way that it's communicated and taught can change. Paul's teaching wasn't the ultimate standard, either. Paul's teaching matched up with the gospel of Jesus. So the teachings of Jesus were the same as the teachings of Paul and were the same as the teachings of Timothy, and they need to be the same as ours today, too. So we can think about who taught us the gospel, and we can be thankful when their teaching matched up with the pattern of sound words. And we can recognize that the way they taught can be different, but they're still matching up the pattern of sound words. Again, this isn't style of teaching, but the content that's coming across. And I also think it's important to remember when we're teaching, when we're learning, that there's things that are of primary importance, and there's things that are of secondary importance, in terms of our Christian doctrine and understanding. And so I'm not as concerned when I'm preaching, when I'm teaching. I'm not as concerned with secondary things. And I'm going to list a few of them. You might disagree with me as to whether or not these are secondary, But I think in a lot of ways they are, because then I'll share some of the foundational, the key things, and I hope you'll see the difference. So when I think of secondary things, I think of things like the age of the earth. How old is the earth? Exactly how did God create the earth? View on end times. What is going to happen? When is it going to happen? How is it going to come about? Uh, We don't know. And so for me, it's secondary, but there's things that we can affirm in, in that Jesus will return, and we know that. Uh, Things such as you can talk with with a bunch of people and get a whole bunch of different ideas about how many spiritual gifts God gives to to the church. And there can be debate and questions. It's secondary. What we can affirm is that God gives us gifts in order to serve him and his church. And it's, it's important. I want you to understand, these are good things to be discussing. These are good things to be learning about and to be settled in your own mind about. I have in my own mind... I've settled what I have, in in turn believe, in terms of age of the earth, on view on end times. But it's easy to, to debate those things because they're not always clear. And sometimes we get so focused on these secondary things that we miss out on the primary things. And those primary things are things such as God is holy. And we are not because we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we recognize that we have need of a Savior. And we recognize that Jesus Christ is God himself who came to earth in order to save us, and that he died to forgive us of our sins, and that we, through a relationship with him, are viewed as holy, and we can go and serve the God who created this entire universe. Those are foundational things. There's more than that, but those are some of the things to be focusing on as we teach. So be thankful for the teachers you have who have focused on those things and who are also able to help you think through the secondary things so that you can be settled in your own mind about them. But be careful. Be sure to test what's being taught. It might seem like it matches up to the pattern of, the, God, of the, the sound words, but you need to test it. You need to be reading all of the Bible so that you understand the story, you understand how God has been at work, and you can identif- identify the good teaching from the false teaching. But don't just pick and choose. Look at it all to see if it matches up. So when you as a church, when you as individuals here are teaching... And when you are serving as ministers of the gospel, you have to figure out how you will stay true to the pattern of sound teaching. And I think there's two things to keep in mind. First, figure out how God has made you as a teacher. We're all teachers. We're all not all teachers who are going to be up here on a Sunday morning, but you might be talking with your neighbor, with your friend, and you'll have an opportunity to teach them some truth of the gospel. Figure out how you can do that best, how God has equipped you to teach others. And then you've got to understand your context. You've got to understand how you can communicate well because you'll teach differently based on where you are. I would teach differently here than I did at Bethany because you're different churches and we need to understand that. And I live in a different neighborhood than you do so I would teach differently. I would talk with my neighbors maybe differently than you would talk with your neighbors. You've got to understand the context, the culture in which you live so that the gospel can go forward and be understood. This is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the good deposit in verse 14. Guard the good deposit. Stay true to the sound words of the gospel. Don't worry about the way that it's taught, but the content. Make sure that what is taught is in line with the truth. But I want to warn you, because as a church and as individuals, as you seek to stay true to the sound to the pattern of sound words, to the pattern of the gospel, it means you'll probably have to change how you do things sometimes. It means that you'll have to take a look at programs and ministries and say, are these still effectively communicating truth? And if they aren't, you need to change them, or you need to let them stop so that you can try something new. It means that you have to take a look at everything to say, is the gospel going forward in this context? Be willing to change. Keep the message the same, but change how you can communicate it, which can be scary, because it's nice to know what's going to be happening. But I would encourage you, as a church, take time to examine and figure out how do we proclaim the gospel in this changing context in which you live. Don't get stuck in the, this is the way we do things trap. Try something new. Be bold as you try to stay true to the pattern of the gospel and proclaim it to your neighborhoods. So we share, we suffer, we're supposed to stay loyal to the gospel, to Paul and other leaders, and to the, to the ministry that God has given to us, the pattern of the gospel. And then Paul finishes up, and he gives two examples. He gives a bad example, one we should avoid, and he gives a positive example of ways to stay faithful. First, in verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among them are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So Paul says that he's been abandoned. He says, everyone who is in Asia, the province of Asia, which is where Ephesus is, everyone's turned away from me. Maybe Paul's exaggerating a little bit, but what he's saying is he's lonely. And some people that he trusted have turned away from him. Phygellus and Hermogenes walked away from Paul, which means they walked away from the gospel in Paul's mind. And he's saying, don't be like them. Stay loyal, even when times are tough. But what I really like about this is, Paul, my temptation, if I was Paul, would be to dwell on Phygelus and Hermogenes and say, man, they abandoned me. Here's the ways that they went about it and list all the specifics. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't dwell on the negative. He moves right away to the positive. And he says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. And he was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched me earnestly, searched for me earnestly, and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul turns right away to the positive example, and he says, remember Onesiphorus. He came to Rome. Paul was sitting in a house jail. He wasn't in a public jail somewhere, and Onesiphorus shows up in Rome. This was a city of over a million people at the time, and Paul couldn't sit down and say, okay, I'll look in the—sorry, f- Onesiphorus couldn't look in the phone book or do a Google search and say, where is Paul today? No, he had to talk to people face to face. He had to be diligent in trying to find out where Paul was, which meant people would hear from him, and if it was someone who knew who Paul was, they would connect Anesiphorus to Paul and say, oh, you're a friend of that enemy of the state who follows that illegal religion? Anesiphorus didn't care. He was not ashamed. He sought Paul out. It took effort to find Paul. And when he found him, he visited him, he cared for him. It says that he would refresh him, which probably means he brought him food and other provisions to help care for Paul in prison. And he did it willingly. He didn't care if there was a stigma attached to knowing Paul. And Paul's saying to Timothy, you know this example. He has a track record, not just here in Rome, but in Ephesus, of serving well. And so Timothy is encouraged to follow that positive example. And I would encourage all of us today to follow that example, and to look for others that you can look to as positive examples of sharing and suffering well as we seek to honor the ministry of the gospel that Jesus Christ has given us. May we look to people who we can say they are serving well. And may we be people that, that could be looked at and seen as those who are serving well. I pray that we, that we would stay loyal to the gospel. We would stay loyal to leaders like Paul, who served well. We would stay loyal to our own ministries of going and proclaiming the gospel in our culture, in our context, keeping the content the same, but teaching it in a way that would be made known to our friends and our neighbors, so that all would be able to have the light of the gospel shine upon them and they could receive Christ through his grace and his mercy. Let me pray. Father, again... Thank you for your word. I pray that we would be challenged to have a better understanding of what it means to share and to suffer as we are ministers of your gospel. Help us to be bold in doing that. Help us to look at those around us and figure out ways to share the never-changing content of the gospel with a world that is constantly changing. Help us to be wise in that. Help us to encourage one another when we suffer and help us to be bold in terms of supporting one another and going and proclaiming your word as ministers of the gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.